This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's not as warm, but the sun is out in Northeast Ohio. You got to celebrate that in January. So this could be a good day. It's today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Laura Johnston, Lisa Garvin, and Layla Tassi. I should point out, we had a lot of people listening to this podcast on Tuesday, way out of proportion to normal. And I'm wondering if it was the Metro Health headline on it that brought so many. I don't know why, but maybe we'll they just it. missed you. And you maybe know, they it's been us, a week us. since they heard us. Yeah. Us, us, okay, us. us. All right, let's get going. How does the Cuyahoga County Planning Commission say zoning codes discourage smart development near public transit? And what research did it just release showing why that kind of development is a good idea these days? Laura, of course, this is a Steve Litt story. He's the master of this subject. This is the pinnacle of a Steve Litt story, right? Pushing for dense transit-oriented development. And research is showing there's market demand for that. People want to be able to walk and in and around Cleveland. So between 2012 and 2021, there were 383 new developments that added nearly $3 billion in real estate value through new construction or renovations in transit corridors throughout Cuyahoga County. We're looking at 22 different corridors. They stretch into 25 different cities. And nearly 88% of that occurred in downtown University Circle, Ohio City, Fairfax, and Huff neighborhoods. So that's not all high density. That's not all, you know, beautiful spaces like Van Aken. It could be fast food drive throughs or parking garages or gas stations, but it's happening already. And you have foot traffic there. You have people. So what the county wants to do is create model zoning to make it easier for cities to put in place mixed use development and high density development so that they can decide if they want to adopt that. And then they'd have a boost of even more development and more investment. But all this was originally envisioned before the pandemic. And the pandemic has changed working habits in such a way where people are going downtown much less often. That whole hub and spoke idea is less vital today because people, when they realize they can work from wherever they want, they went to places that were beautiful or whatever. So is is this still a realistic vision? Are, are people clamoring to live near mass transit if they don't need it to commute to work as much? Well, they could use it to commute to other places. And we all know that a lot of companies are having people come back into the office, even if it's not every single day, 40 hours a week. And I think that it's a, a change from 
you know, the age group of people, younger people don't want to get in a car and drive out into the exurbs necessarily. So they want this walkability. And I would argue that being home alone, working in your house every day makes you want more stuff near you so that you can walk to so that you don't feel so isolated. And we know that that's a, a proponent of health too, to seeing other people. So in the past, we've designed for sprawling automobile oriented development where zoning codes prohibit mixing retail and apartments or they require huge spaces for parking and that stuff isn't necessarily needed right now although much of the inner ring was developed around transit neighborhood i live in was a block away or two blocks away from a major transit line they tore all those out and built big Mm -hmm. grass medians is there any talk about trying to restore the transit for which many of these neighborhoods already are designed I haven't seen anything pushing for like a trolley line, which would be really cool. But these they're calling them walk sheds, right? Like a watershed, but it's walkability. And this is actually, I thought, you know, we're looking at 22 spaces. This is pretty small, but it actually makes up 20% of the county's total area. And then actually 35% of the population, 47% of the non-white population, 56% of households without a vehicle, 29% of total jobs within the county. So if you think about it, this is actually a, a, a big part of Cuyahoga County already. And we've talked often on this podcast how we don't have any big green spaces to develop to, you know, get companies like Intel coming. So if we want development, we're going to have to do it in much smaller spaces in higher density to be able to grow. All right. But there is a problem with this. The County Planning Commission has no sway. This is all local zoning. So if I'm in a community that wants this, my my city council and the mayor could adopt it. But if they don't want it, they're not going to adopt it. What is the planning, the county planning commission's role here? Just to create this model zoning, because not every, you know, why do it 57 times? Have every county, every city in Cuyahoga County have to come up with their own zoning? If they have a a model plan and say, you can adopt this, that makes it a lot easier. You don't have to do all the research or pay all the experts yourself. Yeah, but when you talk to, to local developers, they'll tell you there are a lot of suburbs that don't even allow multifamily housing. They don't mm-hmm. want it. They see it as somehow destroying <clears throat> values. And the Planning Commission has no power to do that. Lisa, it looks like you've been trying to say something. Oh, no, I was just clearing my throat. But I was thinking that, you know, I was thinking of my mayor in Lindhurst, Patrick Ward, when I asked him about regionalism. He was like, nope, not interested <laughs> at all. And I didn't know this, but Lindhurst has no fast food places in it. So they've managed to keep fast food out of Lindhurst, too. Yeah, I think that's part of the issue here. It's the County Planning Commission is trying to do something noble, but this all comes down to pedestrian local politics, and we're a balkanized county. Interesting stuff. Check out Steve Litt's story. It is on Cleveland.com. After shivering in a near blizzard in Cleveland less than two weeks ago, we've seen 60 degrees plus temperatures in several times in the last week. How rare is that, Lisa? 60 degrees in the first week of a new year. It's not a frequent occurrence, Chris. Um, Usually in the first seven days of January, the average temperature is 34 degrees. We were way above that. The record high for the first seven days of January was 66 degrees. That was set in January 5th of 1939 and again on the 6th of January in 1946. So Tuesday's high was 62 degrees. Wednesday, we just barely missed it. The high yesterday at Cleveland Hopkins was 59 degrees. The lowest temperature after a 60 degrees plus day 
was on 1997, January 5th, when the temperature fell from 65 degrees to 29 degrees. So, and this was a fact that I learned yesterday from Betsy Kling on Channel 2 uh, News. She said that yesterday we set the new record minimum temperature. So the overnight low, you know, early Wednesday morning was 53 degrees. That's a new record minimum for Cleveland that, that beat the record of 52 degrees back in 1993. Yeah, I, I'm loving it. As a kid, I remember you had a couple of Januaries like this, and you just were in your glory running around outside. Uh, it, it's just such a far cry from where we were the two days before Christmas, where it was about as bitterly cold as it gets, and we saw lots of pipes bursting. Uh, I didn't hear. I didn't know about the record. Uh, the record low, Laura, how did we miss that? <laughs> I don't know. Usually we're on, on alert for, but I think we probably look for record highs a lot more than we look for the highest low. Yeah. If that makes any sense. And, Salute and, to and, Betsy Kling. And apparently new minimum records were set all over Northeast Ohio. I think Mansfield was one. I think Worcester was another. So several cities set new minimum low records on Wednesday morning. Yeah, I know this is probably climate change, but I have no complaints about stepping outside without a coat in January okay, for a couple it, of you, days. I'm sorry, you did need a coat, but because it was pouring rain, the mm-hmm. ground is totally saturated, and it is destroying all of the snow at Boston Mill. Yeah, that's so all you care go about. To it's just so much prettier when it's white out. I'm, I yeah. saw your pictures of you skiing and having a great time over the holiday. I don't care. It's today <laughs> in Ohio. Frank Jackson announced in 2019 that he would put mental health trauma counselors in city rec centers to deal with all the violence children witness or experience. Then the pandemic hit and that plan pretty much fizzled. Jackson's successor now plans his own variation of the idea. Layla, what does Justin Bibb have in mind? Yeah, as you said, Chris, Jackson announced these plans to expand the function and role of the rec centers to become these trauma-informed neighborhood resource centers. So, so in addition to all the usual recreational and sports program that you'd find there, you'd, you'd also have social workers who help people and families and, and the neighborhood process a traumatic event and, and connect them with mental health resources. But no sooner had Jackson announced this transformative approach than the pandemic hit and everything came to the screeching halt. In fact, rec centers were, were closed entirely for a few months in 2020, just like everything else was. And then the social workers and other rec staff were pretty much diverted from their usual tasks to start administering vaccination clinics. But Justin Bibb sees a lot of value in the vision that, that Jackson laid out for the rec centers. He really wants to carry it forward. So back in May, Bibb asked city council to approve funding for, for new and expanded programming. It includes less traditional sports like rowing and fencing and and programs related to health and wellness and job and career readiness. There's a visual and multimedia and performance arts component and development and leadership skills. There's there's also going to be music lessons and and, um, even a civic program with Kent State University called the Urban Design Collaborative where kids identify and then and then you know work with an architect and build improvements for their neighborhood like benches or a bus stop and so all of these things a number of outside agencies have been tapped to administer some of these programs and then there's the trauma informed care piece rec center staffers have been freshly trained in how to identify the signs of trauma and how to interact with young people and their families without re-traumatizing them and then the next layer is social workers. They can offer short-term counseling and, and then help 
uh, people acquire needed services. That could mean assistance with meeting basic needs, food, clothing, transportation. It could be referrals for mental health or medical appointments, or it could be broader, broader like finding a job or uh, filling out heat, heating assistance applications or getting a GED, things like that. And so that's uh, that's the new path. That what what was important about the trauma counselors back when Jackson announced them? We had learned through Greater Cleveland about the the mental blocks that are created in in children's brains when they encounter right. trauma. And part of his goal was: is there a way to address that so that you can remove some of those blocks? And the fact that it all fell apart because of the pandemic, uh, I didn't realize it until Justin Bibb picked it up. I, I salute Bibb for trying to build on something of his predecessor instead of just sweeping it all away and trying to start new. Right. We always talk about how, you know, leaders, new leaders, they want to put their stamp on things. And sometimes they that means brushing aside uh, the good ideas of their predecessors. And that's not the case here. But I just wanted to note that one major hurdle that they're going to face is is the lagging attendance at the rec centers. They can't quite figure out why it's been really hard to get people in the door. Before the pandemic, they were logging nearly a million visitors across all the rec centers, but they're down to a third of that. And they're trying to come up with a strategy to get the word out about all that the rec centers have to offer. What What is the theory? That people just got a, out of the habit of going and so they're all sitting home they playing can't, video they games? They don't really know. They don't really know. And I think that's probably what it is, is that probably during the pandemic, people filled their lives with other things and um, you know found other ways to, to meet that need that the rec center was providing. But there's so much more that these programs are so much more robust. And I think it's just going to be, a, it's going to require a very um, strategic marketing campaign. There's so many ramifications of the pandemic that have yet to emerge. We seem to learn about new ones every day, and here's one that appears to have emerged. It's today in Ohio. No All-Star Games, no NCAA Final Four contests. So how does the Greater Cleveland Sports Commission say it's going to bring in almost $18 million in sports contests this year, Laura? Volleyball. They are betting big on volleyball. That is the bulk of where the money is coming from, but they have nine sports competitions planned in Greater Cleveland for this year. So this month, Cleveland's hosting more than 450 girls volleyball teams during the Junior Volleyball Association's Association's Rock and Rumble. That's at the Huntington Convention Center of Cleveland for back-to-back weekends. Those two together are $6.3 million for the region. And then there's the Nike North Coast Volleyball Competitions in February and April that'll bring in the rest. I had no idea volleyball was such a moneymaker, but that's on the, the docket. The Drew Joyce Classic for basketball is, is coming up in April. There's some wrestling, some track and field. And then my favorite, Tennis in the Land, will be back for its third year in August. Yeah, it's it, we've had so many big events that to have a year without one, you feel like, well, what's going on? But th- those are rare events. There's a lot of competition for them. Right. And- we had the, the All-Star Game for the NBA last year. 2020, we had the... At, was that yeah was that 2020 or 2021 i'm having pandemic memory loss but it was the nfl draft and so i guess we are due for an off year 2024 we are getting the pan american masters games in july so those are not the, exactly the pan am games but they are a big deal well and the sports commission has got to do stuff in between and so mm-hmm. they've come up with a, a fairly decent roster uh you're right though volleyball is a draw that's that's a new one for me It's Today in Ohio. 
All right, this is one that, that will have people grumbling. We all heard about the canceled flights leading up to Christmas and that Southwest Airlines was to blame for most of them. Travel writer Susan Glazer has put a human face on the torment those cancellations caused and explained how Southwest poor management practices are at the center of them. Lisa, what did she find? Susan had a couple of friends, Ernie and John, who were supposed to arrive in Cleveland from Providence, Rhode Island on December 23rd. And as you remember, that's when the blizzard came roaring through here. They were rebooked to Christmas Day, but they were told on their plane to Baltimore that their connecting flight to Cleveland would likely be canceled, and it was. So they stayed at a Baltimore hotel overnight. They rebooked and canceled flights two more times, or rebooked and had flights canceled two more times, tried to get a car rental. They were all all sold out in the Baltimore area. They finally made it to Cleveland on the evening of the 27th. Four days later, they had to take a United flight from Dulles Airport. But a couple of things that kind of saved them a little bit more trauma is that both guys had carry-ons only, so they didn't have to deal with that nightmare of trying to find their luggage. And they also saved their hotel, food, and travel receipts for reimbursement later on. And Susan said in her story that normally when your flight is canceled, you try to book a new one as soon as possible because hundreds of other people are trying to do the same thing. But that strategy obviously didn't work. And she said you could be, you know, the most seasoned traveler and you still would end up sleeping on a bench at Denver International because of this. Industry analyst Robert Mann um, said that actually Southwest has technology that dates back to the 1980s and the 1990s, and they really can't run a company this size in this day and age with that kind of, you know, technology. Southwest will recover, he says, but they have to fix their problems. And he said they've been very good and very, uh, you know, quick with reimbursements, you know, for, for travelers who were inconvenienced. But I must point out, and I saw a report on this and, and read up on it, is that Southwest has a point-to-point system, which is why I don't fly them. <laughs> the last time I flew Southwest in the 90s, it landed eight times before I got to California. So, um, you know, most airlines use a hub and spoke where they have a, a hub, you know, like, you know, Cleveland used to be for United. So it might be that the point to point system is part of the problem. Well, when you read about their outdated computer technology, you really did wonder if they had an executive sharing agreement with the Ohio Unemployment Office because <laughs> it's the same kind of thing. But but that that would stick in my cross so badly if I had made the plans and I was I was, got stuck for four days missing holiday gatherings because of gross incompetence by the people running the airline. I would never fly that airline again. I, that would be it. I'd say. You know, this wasn't about the weather. This wasn't about external issues. You guys are clowns. You can't even run your airline. And I I lost out on experiences that I can't get back because of it. Uh, and that and it affected a million people across the country is the estimate that that we're scrambling uh, sleeping in the airport. <laughs> just it's the worst. Well, you know, then again, to be fair, there was this blizzard. And also they were dealing with rolling staffing shortages. Crews can only fly, to fly a certain amount of hours and then they're benched by requirement. So that's part of it. I agree there are probably management problems, but if you think about it, if you're a point to point airline, you're landing in a lot of airports. Hub and spoke, they don't land at a lot of airports. So, uh, you know, just uh, in Denver, we saw in Denver, you know, when things went bad at Denver International, the domino effect occurred and that really affects a short haul flight or, you know, airline like Southwest. 
Yeah, because the other airlines all recovered very quickly. I mean, granted, on Thursday and Friday and even Saturday before Christmas, weather was a huge issue, but the other airlines did seem to come back more quickly. It's a good story by Susan Glazer, and it is on our website. It's today in Ohio. How many Ohio municipalities left stimulus money on the table last year? Layla, I actually am glad about this because it saves tax money. Hey, save tax money. We're not squandering it. And this is a preview. This story is not even published yet. Yes, this is a podcast listener's exclusive sneak peek. <laughs> uh, Lucas Deprilli, our, stim- our Stimulus Watch reporter, has discovered that about 53 municipalities in Ohio that were eligible for American Rescue Plan Act dollars have left that money on the table, either because they flat out rejected it or because they sent it back to the feds. A a lot of these are small villages and townships, sometimes with fewer than a couple hundred people. But altogether, these municipalities have turned down a combined $3.6 million in ARPA money. Why, you ask? Well, that's a great question, because even for towns that can't afford fancy lawyers or grant writers, the application process is really not that onerous. And the parameters around spending it are pretty liberal, as we've seen with the county slush funds, right? (laughs) But, um, you know, even the Ohio Office of Budget and Management says that they've attempted multiple times to reach out to some of these towns over the past year to, to get the process started. But that doesn't seem to have worked. Lucas tried to to ask some township trustees about their logic in turning down the money. Some trustees declined to comment. Um, One who didn't want to be identified blamed another township official for being too lazy to fill out the paperwork. Um, Others have have said similar to what you said that, you know, they don't want to participate in, in, uh, you know, using government dollars uh, in, in, you know, ways that could be squandered. Um, one trustee, Washington Township trustee, David Robber, told Lucas that the township chose not to apply for its share, which would have been $132,000, uh, because of worries that the federal government could eventually claw back the money if they decided that one of their projects was suddenly ineligible. They were afraid that they'd be on the hook to pay that money back. So they rejected it, I guess, out of an abundance of caution. So the story is coming later today, along with a map showing all these municipalities and how much money they left on the table. The money did a lot of good in a lot of ways, in a lot of places, but we have seen a remarkable number of projects for which it was wasted. So you got to salute a government that chooses not to spend the money rather than waste it on something that they don't necessarily need. I look at this as a very good news story. Yeah. I mean, I guess, though, that they're they're going to still be using tax dollars to pay for the things they need. And um, I think to the people who live in those communities, they this will probably rub them the wrong way that they didn't take free money from the feds. But it's not free money. We're all paying for that. Well, money. you know, you know. OK, it's today in Ohio. Look for that story later. Cleveland Cavalier Donovan Mitchell did something remarkable Monday night, scoring a franchise record 71 points over the Chicago Bulls. Why does the NBA say the refs should have stopped that record run? Laura, this is a fascinating story. It is fascinating, and I am going to credit Chris Fedor for explaining it all because I 
just crib from him when I put my notes together. But we are talking about the Cavs, 145 to 134, come from behind, overtime win against the Bulls. And the NBA put out their last two-minute report. That looks at video of officiated events that occurred in the last two minutes of the game that were within three points during any point in those last two minutes of the fourth quarter and in overtime were applicable. So the NBA found two incorrect calls. Both of them were in Cleveland's favor. And the most notable and controversial came when Donovan Mitchell made this layup following a missed free throw. And that gave him the franchise record 58 points, sent the game into overtime. And it was with 4.6 less seconds left. But the thing is, he deliberately missed the second free throw so he could collect this rebound in midair and flip it in the basket. But the review of the play showed that he stepped over the free throw line before the ball touched the basket. And that is a violation of NBA rules that should have been called and negated the basket, keeping the Cavs behind and basically ending the game. Yeah. How many times has a Cleveland team been on the wrong side of a bad call? (laughs) (laughs) I really don't. I don't feel bad about this. There have been so many bad calls that determine a contest. For Cleveland to actually come out on the upside of one is amazing. And let's face it, that's an incredible night. LeBron James didn't do that. No previous Cav had done it. He's the seventh player in NBA history to tally more than 70 points in a game because obviously that move allowed it to go into overtime where he scored 13 more points, bringing that total to 71. There was one other issue. Jarrett Allen, I guess, should have been called for traveling before a jump hook shot that cut Chicago's lead to one point. So I guess he lifted and replanted his pivot foot before releasing this ball. But you're right. How many times are we talking about the shot and the fumble and all of these things? And now for the, you know, this people are still talking about Donovan Mitchell and what an all-star he is. And to see him eclipse LeBron James, you know, the native son and Layla's favorite athlete ever. uh, It's pretty cool. And they're an exciting team. They're giving people something Mm -hmm. to talk about. The Browns have been a complete fizzle and OSU sadly lost that close game, but the Cavs are what people are talking about. So it's been, but but what's the point of this armchair quarterbacking? Honestly, (laughs) here's this young man who did this historic feat and they're like, well, but you know, if they'd done this call, well, they didn't do that call. So, you know, I agree. I mean, it's kind of like an asterisk, you know, he played the game that didn't call it. It doesn't change the outcome. Now it, it's not his fault they didn't call yeah. it, right? It, it right. does make it, you wonder, like, well, what's the point? Yeah, I, well, did you see, he tweeted out that, the, the like, the next day or the day after, they, they made him do a drug test, and he, he took it oh, in stride, but it was like, huh, look at the timing <sighs> of this, a drug test after that night. So it, it's a bit of disrespect for the Cavs, but yes. I don't care. Mm-hmm. The hell with them all. It's a great, a great achievement for an exciting team. It's today in Ohio. All right. Lisa, this is interesting. Lots of people were talking about it after it published. What books were the most read by Clevelanders last year based on library statistics? Basically, it's Japanese manga series. So uh, of the top 10 most popular checked out books in the Cleveland library system, six of them are Japanese manga books by Japanese authors. So uh, they said that actually, you know, uh, there were 12 Japanese manga titles that were checked out more than 7,000 times in 2022. And these are physical copies, so hard copies of books. Now, if you're looking at audiobooks and eBooks, Love and Mystery were the most popular with audio listeners. There are about a dozen or so titles 
holes that were checked out more than 7,000 times. And then there were about 36,000 holds on some of these uh, titles as well. So I don't recognize many of these books. I, I read weird books anyway. But like the number one was The Last Thing He Told Me by Laura Dave, uh, where the crawdad sing comes in at number four. That's the, I think that was an Oprah book. I know everybody's reading it. Um, and then there's like, but the number 10 was Berserk by Kentaro Miura. That's one of the Japanese manga uh, uh, books. But they said there were long waiting lists of 4,000 or more people for Colleen Hoover's two books, Verity and It Ends With Us. And they think if there were copies available, it probably would have made the top 10 as well. So yeah, interesting. And um, Japanese manga is very popular in the 18 to 49 uh, age demographic. So yeah, what, that's kind of interesting. I'm not familiar with that genre at all. Does anybody know what, what makes it so popular? I was going to ask the same question. I mean, Laura, you, you, it, you're always in line for books at the library. That must be what's I, on your reading list, right? <laughs> no. And I did read one Cal Colleen Hoover book because I felt like everybody was talking about them, but I, I didn't read Verity. I was going to ask if you guys keep track because I feel like at the end of the year on Facebook and, and Instagram, everybody is posting how many books they read of the year. And they've got these very pretty pictures of all the covers. And honestly, I don't keep track. I mean, uh, I, I'm guessing somewhere around like... 75 but I feel like if I was writing it all down it would become homework and then I'd feel bad about the books I read like 15 <laughs> pages of and was like nope not for me yeah, I, so I, I wanted to hear yeah no I don't I could tell you the last book I read and then it goes out of my mind just finished an immense world terrific book about the ways all the different creatures of the world experience the planet and it makes what's going on in Washington these days just look so small when you um, think about what is going on around us um, and uh, I, I did want to mention, though, that uh, the Cleveland Public Library is holding a challenge, a reading challenge for this year. They want Clevelanders to read one million books or listen to one million minutes this year. And I noticed in, in, the, in the newspaper, it said time spent reading the newspaper counts, people. So Does it count if you read Cleveland.com, though? That's the, you know, we need that, too. What about time spent listening to this listening podcast? Listening to this podcast. <laughs> there you go. There's a transcript online, so you can kind of mix and match, right? As long as you don't mind reading, like figuring out what the word we actually said was. Right. In that transcript. Yeah, that terrible. automated transcript has been sometimes quite embarrassing. We've actually had to go in and alter it because it's like putting in obscene words that we did not say. Oh, no. Yeah, there's... Well, hey, but that, that piques words people's interest. Weird. Maybe they'll go and listen. <laughs> no. They want to know what the context was. Yeah, we just put it in there for the search engine equity we get from it. We don't even... And we get complaints when we don't have it in there just gonna put that from public there. officials that are worried that we're talking about them because we do <laughs> it's today in ohio thanks laura thanks layla thanks lisa thank you everyone who listens we will be back friday to wrap up the week of news 